Well, good morning. We are going to continue in our series that is about the life of David. David was the one man in Scripture that is described as a man after God's own heart. So the question is, what about David made God say that? How did he demonstrate that he had a heart after God? You know, if you're here today and you have friends, you are a rich person. I have, a, I have a friend that we, we were actually in college together. We were roommates for a year. I remember going with him to the girl he was trying to ask out's house in watching to see who brought her home. And I remember when he tried to ask her out and things weren't going so well. He remembers when I, remember, when I first thought of doing something a little different than just being a friend to Cindy Hughes. And I went back and sat beside him and I said, do you think Cindy Hughes would ever go out with me? And like a good roommate friend, he says, oh, go for it, because they don't care if you get burnt. <laughs> and we've watched our families grow. We've We've been from a distance observing ministries that God has enabled us to be a part of. You know, there's an artist, and I, I'm not endorsing everything he does, but his name is Ben Rector. Anybody here ever listen to Ben Rector? There's, yeah, there's three of us. Okay, it's great. Um, ben Rector uh, write, wrote a song called Old Friends. And it starts out with, he pulls together his high school uh, band and he goes back to his home and in the garage is where they played and they performed this song, Old Friends. And here are some of the lyrics. It begins with this. I can still find Riley's house riding on my bike with my eyes closed. I could name every girl that he took out and from memory dial his phone. And then he goes on through the song and it ends this with this. You can grow up and make new friends, which you should, by the way. But the truth is there's nothing like old friends because you can't make old friends. Now, if you start today and make a friend, in 20 years, there'll be an old friend. So will you. Today, we're going to be looking at the life of David, and it's this most amazing friendship that David has with Jonathan, the son of King Saul. These two men should have never been friends. One was a crown prince, the other was a shepherd. One, one was wealthy, the son of a king, who, who carried with him prestige and honor, and the other guy was a humble shepherd boy, often overlooked. These two men should have been rivals, enemies on opposite sides of the political spectrum. And yet, these two men, they were friends. You know, I hope you're going to walk away today with a new appreciation for what it's like to have a friend and be a friend. But we can't get there until we just get to the story, which is in 1 Samuel 17, beginning, beginning in verse 51. Here's how the story goes. David has just killed Goliath. And when the Philistines saw that their champion, that's Goliath, was dead, they fled. 
Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley into the gates of Ekron and wounded the Philistines. The wounded Philistines fell along the road to Sharin, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now when they had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, so Jonathan apparently was listening. Jonathan is the crown prince. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day, and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. So as now David and Jonathan were in the same area, the, the relationship develops. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Very significant. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, it had happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with musical instruments. And so the women sang as they danced and said, wow, this is a beautiful moment for Saul. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Oops. Then Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him, and he said, they have ascribed to David 10,000, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. He prophesied inside the house, so David played music with his hand as at it, as it other times. But there was a spear in Saul's hand, and Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David because, he, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways. And the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he had behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. So here's the story. David's the champion of Israel. 
He actually saved Israel when he defeated Goliath. He turned things around. People were ecstatic because wherever David went, whatever battle he fought, David succeeded. David behaved wisely, respectfully toward the king. David served his people at the risk of his own life. Um, You might have thought that this was a great time for David, but actually, immediately, the honeymoon between he and Saul did not last very long. Saul became jealous of David. Of David. And you see in this, this passage, there are three different responses to David and his success. There are, there's the response of the fans, the ones who sang, David, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. They worshiped David as a hero. There, there was the, the um, foe, which was Saul. He was jealous that this young guy is now getting more attention than him. And then you have this incredible gift of God in the most unlikely friend and a model of friendship that is above all others. So let's just take a look at those three things, the fan. Hero worship, they even made up a song. Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. David was catapulted immediately into celebrity status. He became their hero. He was famous. He was loved. I mean, you know, you and I live in a celebrity culture. If David launched a shoe line, it would have sold out. I'm promising you. Now, you and I love celebrities. We, we long for heroes. Did you know that? That's human nature. Um, we, we want to know more and more about the celebrities in our lives. I mean, we want to know what do they wear, what, um, what do they eat, what do they drink, and this whole celebrity culture is a lucrative business. Because you see, if we can eat what they eat, drink what they drink, wear what they wear, we somehow feel an attachment, and they're our hope. I mean, they make us feel good. Um, for instance, did you know that George Clooney, anybody here know who George Clooney is? You know, you know who that is? Well, we even got a woo. Okay, so George Clooney, endorsed Nespresso, which is a coffee-making system, and by getting his photograph taken with a cup of Nespresso coffee, he earns $5 million a year. In, in this partnership, he's already earned some report up to $40 million. I'm saying that's a good cup of coffee. Taylor Swift, anybody here of Taylor Swift? Yeah, okay. You know what? Taylor Swift has earned $26 million drinking Diet Coke, at least for the picture. You know, we think, wow, she's cool, she's beautiful, she's talented, she's popular, she drinks Diet Coke, I'm going to drink some Diet Coke. David Beckham, the soccer player, signed a deal with Adidas a lifetime deal for $160 million. Now, he's no longer a soccer player, but he still earns um, some money every year in the millions. My favorite, though, is LeBron James. Anybody heard of LeBron James? You better. LeBron James has reportedly earned 
a billion dollars for endorsing Nike over his career. Why do we do that? You know, the truth is, you and I, we're all very insecure, uncertain about the future, uncertain about who we are, whether we have worth and value, and sometimes heroes provide an outlet for us to say, well, man, I, I really like them, and so if I, can, if I can sort of buy their products and drink their drinks, it makes me feel like I'm maybe part of them. I read an article by a reporter in, the, in USA Today who said that what he loves to do that annoys his friends is when he meets a celebrity in public, he's in New York City, he says he goes up to them and he, he, he's like, you know, he's like, hey, Will, how you doing? Will Smith, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's so-and-so. And, and Will, he says the celebrities, no matter who they are, they play along for a while and then they get a little bit freaked out like this guy is a little bit creeping me out. James loves WWE wrestlers. James is my, my son, 26 years old. He has gotten through many a preacher's meeting by borrowing my phone and watching WWE wrestling. <laughs> Those preachers think that he's in rapt attention by what they're saying. Uh-uh. He's watching WWE. James thinks that I should know Vince McMahon and is disappointed that I don't. I, he said, no, you know him. I don't know Vince McMahon. And James says to me, you should. <laughs> this, this desire for a hero, we're looking for someone who's going to make us okay, secure our hopes and dreams, make us feel like we're worth something and we have a hope and a future. Hero worship is a real deal. And so the first group of people, they became fans of David. Saul got angry at the, at the chant developed because Saul got the story wrong. You know what the right story was? It wasn't that David had killed his tens of thousands. It was that God had visited the people of Israel and he designed and crafted an incredible story of deliverance. He sends out a teenage shepherd boy with a staff, a slingshot, and a pouch of stones against the war machine Goliath, who is nine foot tall, powerful, strong, with years of experience. And everybody watching says, if I evaluate the odds here, boy, it's going to be a quick smash of David. And yet God intervenes, and David trusts in God's intervention and supernatural help and he pulls out a stone and he throws it and he hits Goliath just at the right spot that makes him fall down, knocks him out. Can you imagine? The only place it wasn't covered by armor. David comes over and chops off his head and he raises the head of the champion Goliath and all of the soldiers on both sides are shocked. And the point of that was, God is our champion. God is our hero. 
You want to be secured? You want to have a sense of value? You want to be okay today and have a hope for your future? I'm, there's only one hero that's going to work for you, and that is Jesus Christ. Salvation is from the Lord. Tim Keller um, quotes um, a man by the name of John Newton. You might know John Newton as the, the writer of the very famous and beloved song, Amazing Grace. And John Newton says that one of the things that destroys marriages is hero worship. Isn't that kind of an odd statement? He goes on to describe why he says that. He says, if you look to your spouse to provide for you um, what only God can give you, you turn them into your hero. He says, marriage is so incredible, so wonderful, but if you look to your spouse's love, your spouse's respect, your spouse's affirmation to give you meaning in life, to give you a foundation for your sense of value, all the things that you should only get, be getting from God, what you have done is you have turned your spouse into the hero and substituted them in the place of God, and they cannot be God in your life. So here's the problem. Uh, when, you, uh, when you have criticism from your spouse, it'll crush you. When, when you don't feel like they love you like they should, it'll crush you because everything is dependent on them. You know what God wants? God wants you to trust in him for love and value. And then he gives you a spouse and you can do a better job enjoying marriage when you don't have to have them fulfill the role of God in your life because they can't. So when you get your relationship with God right and he is your hero, then you can make marriage as God designed it work better because you're not demanding so much you know, it's hard to be in a relationship where someone is demanding so much out of you all the time. Do you know what I'm saying? Some of you know what I'm saying. Sometimes we make our children our hero. You know, our, our emotional well-being gets so attached to our children that when things go wrong, we're devastated. You know, I told you I have a grandbaby. She's a year and something months old, and she's toddling around, and, and she's an angel. I thought she was an angel. She was perfect in every way. And then I got this video from my son, Robert, where she's over there banging on the screen of the fireplace. I might have told you this already, but I love that video. She's banging on the screen, and, and Robert on the video says, Eleanor, stop that. She looks over at him. I told you to stop that, okay? She looks right at him and bangs again. Turns out, she's not an angel. But she's incredibly cute. You and I are looking for a savior, and the only savior who's gonna work is Jesus. In our heart of hearts, when we feel insecure and unloved, what we're doing is we're looking for a savior. I mean, this is normal and natural for us to be looking for a savior because we actually do need one. 
And the only one who can be that savior is Jesus, the eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, always present, righteous and holy son of God whose love is unconditional and whose compassion and his compassionate love endures forever. Only Jesus can fit that bill. You know, I, I read Psalm 127. Like I said, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. You need a savior, don't you? You got one. Let him in. Trust him. Ask for his help. In your trouble, acknowledge that. And let God be God, the champion, the hero who will not let you down. David later would write Psalm 20. Listen to this. This is why he's a man after God's own heart. May the Lord answer you in your day of trouble, in the day of trouble. If you have trouble today, I'm gonna ask you, what troubles you right now? What is the thing that's on your mind? Did you know that the Lord will answer you in the day of trouble, but you know what you need to do is tell him, God, this is what's troubling me. Will you help me? And he will answer you. May the name of the Lord uh, name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice, Selah. May he grant you according to your heart's desires. I mean, do you know that God cares about your heart's desires? And fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And they bowed down, and they, they have bowed down and fallen. We have risen and stand upright. Say, Lord, may the king answer us when we call. David was a man who never in all of his battles left for very long at least his understanding that the real king must be God. So, fans, second is foe. You know, Saul, Saul was on a downward spiral. He was refusing to let God be the ruler. You know, the king was supposed to serve under the mighty hand of God the king. Saul had left that. He thought of himself as being it. He began to refuse to follow the instructions that were given to him from God by the prophet. He absolutely disobeyed and disregarded and did his own thing. And God eventually had to remove Saul from being the king. And that's why now he sees David as a threat because he can see that the hand of God is on David. And he tries to kill David at least 20 times over the next few chapters. There's a fan, there is a foe, and then lastly, God is so gracious to give David in this time a friend. Jonathan, the crown prince of Israel, the heir apparent to the throne. Jonathan's heart and David's heart are knit together. Jonathan sees past 
all of the fan stuff, and he sees that the hand of God is on David, he seems to be aware that, the, that God has chosen to anoint David as the next king, not himself. Now, he could have fought for that. That would have been the natural thing to do. But Jonathan, I, I think Jonathan was also a man after God's own heart. Because Jonathan wanted the kingdom to flourish more than he wanted his own reputation to flourish. God, he was telling his father when his father was in a fit of rage, you, you better not kill David. I mean, that would be an injustice. I mean, he has done you no harm. He has done only good for the nation. You see, it's, it takes a very strong man to prefer not their own personal success, but the success and, of the mission, the, the combined success. And this is Jonathan. Jonathan loved David. You know, when he gave him his, his uh, coat and his sword, do you know what Jonathan was saying? He was saying, David, I, I defer to you. I have watched the hand of God on you. It is you, not me, who should be the next king, and I will not fight for it. In fact, I defer to you and give you my princely robe and the sword. These were significant gestures where Jonathan humbles himself before David. It's an amazing story. Um, you know, I, I do want to also say this. You know, the friendship is one of the greatest gifts they became one in spirit. They shared their hopes and their fears, their motives and their dreams, and it was an unusual relationship. I mean, here's the truth. Men have a hard time having good relationships with other men. I know the men aren't going to give me an amen, but the women, the wives might say, yeah, boy, that's true. Um, Surely you might have mentioned that some have tried to take this beautiful friendship relationship and say that it was a gay relationship, but there's nothing in Scripture that would indicate that that's what was going on. That statement is kind of a response to the over-sexualized culture in which we live. I mean, everything is about sex. Well, what about having meaningful, deep relationships with people, friendships. That's what was going on here. These two men, they should have been rivals. They should have been adversaries, but they became friends. They demonstrated a level of love and commitment in this friendship that is often not seen. Actually, the vision of Jesus was that in his church, you and I could grow to love each other with this level of self-sacrifice and love. The instruction of his church was this. You should love one another. Confess your sins one to another. You should pray for one another. You should accept one another. 
Bear each other's burdens. You should forgive each other and restore. This was Jesus calling the people in his church to a remarkable demonstration of friendship and love. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Could we learn to love each other that way? Why do we come to church? Why do we have small groups and Sunday school and Wednesday night Bible studies? Because people need friends. And in church, we have the opportunity to develop friendships, to pray for each other, to accept each other. You know, I've, I've been a pastor for a while now, and um, you know what I've observed? Sometimes people go through messes, and often those messes are what they created themselves. And I know so often in church there is condemnation and criticism and exclusion, and while we would never want to give up our commitment to truth, we must always make sure we don't violate the law of love. We gotta keep believing in each other, for each other. You know, I've seen marriages I thought would have no hope, seriously. Spent time counseling couples, time after time after time, and I'd leave thinking, wow, that's a goner. It's not gonna happen. I'd pray for them and it didn't seem like they even wanted me to pray for them. And then, supernaturally, things started to get better. And then they are up on stage dedicating a baby and I'm thinking, yeah, things got really good. And this family continues. you will have ups and downs. And the role of the church is to love you through it, never compromise truth or conviction or holiness or declare what is not right, right, but to have patience and long-suffering and true friendship. That's what David and Jonathan had. But the greatest friend of all is Jesus. John 15 says, no greater love is this than a man would give his life for his friends. You know, we talked about how veterans have given up part of their lives and some have given their lives. Jesus, the very son of God, the creator of life itself, one day goes to a cross and he becomes the substitute for our, our judgment He's the Lamb of God who takes on himself the wrath of God against sin because sin cannot stand or eternity would be awful. And it's like the lightning bolt of God's wrath for sin of all time. Jesus steps up on the cross and he buffers that wrath in his body as he receives the condemnation and he pays with his life and he dies 
And then three days later, he rises again. He says, I'm the first of the resurrection. If you believe in me, though you die, you will not die because you will experience resurrection. And how am I going to conquer the sin in your life? I'm going to conquer it with this level of love, friendship, and devotion. That's what he wants to do. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, if you will.